Hey, and welcome to the Entrepreneur's Ecosystem Podcast, where we aim to help you, the big-hearted change maker with a bold vision to build a business that gives you butterflies and a life that makes you want to high-five yourself. How? By addressing the interconnected nature of all that you do. From marketing to mindset and everything in between, we believe your business is more ecosystem than monoculture and that when it comes to creating sustainable success, it's all connected and there is no one-size-fits-all formula. Join us for conversations that embrace nuance, elevate the importance of empathy, and address the diverse and unique strengths that enable entrepreneurs to not just make money, but to make real lasting positive change in a regenerative and revolutionary way. Welcome back friends to the Entrepreneur's Ecosystem. Shandi and I are stoked as heck today to have Summer Oways on the pod. Summer, what a woman. She is an incredible email conversion strategist for SaaS and e-commerce brands. And she's helped companies like HubSpot, Drip, and Pinterest, and all sorts of other ones that she's under an NDA not to speak about um, in brands, increase conversions, retain customers, and fix the money leaking gaps in their emails. She's also the founder of Emails Done Right, the newsletter where she picks an email fight every Wednesday and creator of the e-commerce email book boot camp, where she teaches the ins and outs of email strategy to copywriters looking to break into the e-commerce email world. And she's just the nicest woman, so generous with her genius. And yeah, someone that I know both Shani and I feel incredibly blessed to call a friend. Welcome, Summer. That was a wonderful introduction. I don't think I'm that awesome, but thank you. I love you guys. And I am thrilled to be here. Oh, we're so thrilled to have you. Yeah. I love to reminisce on like the first connection we have with guests because almost everyone we have on, we've like connected with in some way, whether IRL or virtually. And I just have such a fond memory of being at TCC IRL and you letting me practice my speech in the yes. hotel room. I was so nervous and you were like so kind and a wonderful, a wonderful audience of, I think it was um, you and Iman. Yes. And we drank shy. It was great. Yeah. 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 So I, backstory, I, met, I don't travel without my tea and creamer, like, I am a total tea snob. I drink coffee, so like, and I don't find tea to be strong enough in other countries for some reason. And so, and I was jet lagged, and I think I fell asleep midway through your um, rehearsal, and I felt so guilty about that. <laughs> I was like so out of it after traveling for over twenty four hours that I was like, you know what? If I get embarrassed about it, I am going to ruin my the first ever conference that I was attending. And so I was like, you know what, suck it up. It's okay. She, she yeah. understand. No, no. It, 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 it permeated your subconscious in some way. I'm pretty sure you went, you went on to create a really incredible quiz. Yeah. So there you go. And have you seen Bridgerton summer? I have. I have. Because you remind me of that. The, the main character, her name right now. And she's such a tea snob. <laughs> and she goes to England and she's like, what is this putrid, boring tea? I need my chai. Yeah, I really identified with that part. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so glad you're here. We love to start by asking a little bit about who you are in the context of do you identify with any common frameworks like astrology, human design, Enneagram, DISC, Strengths Finder, Colby, Myers Briggs. Myers Briggs. Um, <laughs> oh my God, nothing. Nothing <laughs> at all. That's like, great. I am, I'm like, if you were asking me to 
you were to ask me my star sign, it, I'm a Taurian, and I think I have like all the traits of one, but that's as far as I will go. Like, I don't look at my horoscope or anything like that. I just know because as a teenager, I have this phase where I was obsessed with traits that come with like every single um, star sign, and the only star signs details I remember is mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I don't, and I, I, I honestly think it's because I don't have the time. Mm, yeah. <laughs> like I am either momming or I am working, and there's just and and I'm not in an industry that pays attention to these things, right? And so it just mm-hmm. never popped on my radar. Could be like an interesting uh, question to ask at the beginning of like signing up for a SaaS company, like what's your horoscope or what's your human design, <laughs> right? Because so many coaches actually will work with human design with their clients. But yeah, I suppose for e-commerce or SaaS, it would only re- be relevant if it was uh, like either a software that works towards that, which I just met with a friend and her dad is creating Cardify, which is like um, an app that has like tarot decks in it or what have you. So maybe if he became a client, <laughs> then yeah. he'd like pay more attention. Um, and I feel like maybe e-commerce, if it was like some mystical e-commerce or something. Yeah, absolutely. If a brand is selling tarot cards, then why not? Like, <laughs> I have ideas. I have ideas like a weekly tarot card reading that we could do in an email. Like if it's email, if you, if, if it's email marketing related, I don't care what kind of store or SaaS company it is. I want to do your emails. Mm-hmm. And you should. They would be lucky to have you. That's for sure. Can I backtrack? And, and just, I want to pick up on that statement of you're either momming or you're working on your business and helping clients and doing all the things. And I totally relate to that 100%. It's like, am I even a person when I'm not momming or working, how do you, how do you juggle all of it? I don't, right? (laughs) So I deal with it by dropping a lot of balls, right? So like at any given time, I have maybe one or two in the air, but there are like seven to 10, like all around me Mm. on the floor. And I've learned to be okay with that. So if uh, like, this is crunch time for my business, I'm going on a vacation uh, in July. I'm taking three weeks off and I'm in the middle of a course launch and it's early bird. Yes. The the proper launch will kick off after I come back from vacation, but the early bird is happening now. And even early bird is just so freaking stressful. On top of that, I am trying to wrap up all of my retainer work for July so that my clients aren't bugging me for emails on my vacation. And I'm trying to like wrap up two months worth of work in one launching and then like trying to keep my kids entertained because summer vacations have started and I am back to my crazy schedule of staying up until 5 a.m. trying mm. to wrap up work. Oh my gosh, Summer. Well, I feel you. I've got lots of balls on the floor as well. And I love that you're taking three weeks off. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, every time I'm like pulling an all-nighter, I keep telling myself I've worked so hard to find a, some semblance of a work-life balance. Like it's just these these few weeks, it'll, you know, it'll balance itself out. I'm going on a vacation. And that's how I'm justifying it to myself. Mm-hmm. Because truly, like, I, uh, Dawn knows this. I have worked hard over the past year and a half to, like, really slow down in terms of, like, mm-hmm. workload, right? Mm-hmm. So I can't do anything about my kids. That amount of workload is always going to be the same. But I can, and I have managed my business workload to a point where if I want to take an impromptu lunch, I can. If I decide I don't want to work Friday, then I just want to head over to my mom's and chill out with my sisters. I can. And I am in love with this part, but obviously like business is business. So some, some months are busy. Others are not. And I'm in a busy season right now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so, that's so amazing that you've made it so that you've got some spaciousness and freedom, but also can take the chaos in stride. That's a good skill set to have. I wonder, and I think Don mentioned something to me in passing. So I hope I'm not totally like off my rocker here, but did you increase your prices rather dramatically? Did that have effect on 
your ability to have more freedom in your work yes. schedule? Yes. And I, and I think a little bit of a backstory is needed here to yeah. truly understand what kind of a my mindset I was in. So December 2020, I am working 12 to 14 hours a day. It's, it's, it's bad enough that I wake up, park my butt in my chair and start working. My kids complain, we're hungry. I get up, give them food, come right back. And it's nonstop, right? Business is booming. I don't want to turn away anybody. I'm finally making money and about to hit my, uh, about to have my first six-figure year, right? And I live about five minutes walk away from my parents at that point. And like one day, I all of a sudden started thinking like nobody's called me. Oh. Like my mom and my sisters haven't called me in almost over a day. Like what's going on? So I call my mom and it turns out my dad is in the hospital. And when he started feeling ill, my mother just took him to the hospital instead of calling me when I was five minutes away, assuming that I was too busy. And I was, right? But the idea that they just couldn't call me and I wasn't available to them when they needed me just really hit, hit me really hard. My dad is fine now. He's in perfect health. But that was a way to call him mm. that I needed, right? And so I remember going to like looking for a business coach because I was booked out six months in advance and I didn't want to face another day. And I told that business coach, I was like, I don't care if I don't make six figures again, but I do not want to be working this hard. And so I'm like really frustrated at this point and I'm done with my business and I'm like about to slash it in half. And um, kudos to my business coach for A, walking me off the ledge and then just really asking me the right questions, right? started the conversation with what do you love about your work and I'm burned out at this point I'm working 14 hours I don't love anything and so then she started asking me okay what are the parts that you absolutely hate let's outsource it let's partner it with people and so it turns out the only thing I love was putting together email strategies I wasn't enjoying the copywriting part I hated the voice of customer research sec section of my projects and so on and so forth and so what this did was because I didn't want to be an agency and I didn't want to hire subcontractors and so on, the, the other path for me was partnering up with people, which means they get paid their rates, I get paid my rates, and together we chunk it up in a one big project fee. What that ended up doing was me almost tripling or quadrupling, no, tripling, tripling my rates. So I went from 6500 for an onboarding project to 18000 Oh, and <laughs> sounds amazing. The first three companies I coded that pro project fee to pretty much laughed me out of the room, right? There were these like unbelievable smirks and like this, oh, that is not the figure that we, you know, had in mind and so on and so forth. But something in me, I was like, I don't want to go back to that grind. Mm. And I had a bit of a safety net built in thanks to that crazy six-figure year that I was, I could take it slow, right? I was like, I will wait for the perfect project. And the first company to say yes to my rates was HubSpot. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, if one company has said yes, I can wait and another will say yes too. And I just slightly and slowly kept increasing my rates with every project. And my 18 days of this memory now were much higher, but it's, um, you know, I was done. I couldn't, I couldn't survive another year like the one I had. And so that mindset, that like complete, like overwhelm, that overwhelm that I was feeling led to me making that drastic decision and then just sticking with it. Right. Like we make a lot of decisions in our businesses, but when it comes crunch time, when it comes time to like implement them or like actually say them out loud in front of other people, we chicken out. But I was so done at that point. And I was like, you know what? I don't care if they lock me out of the room. I don't care if they turn down the proposal. This is the price that makes it worth it for me. Mm -hmm. This is the price that will, and the structure of the project that will give me the life that I want to build. Oh, I'm just so happy you did that. Um, from like, well, like watching you sort of go through that stress. I remember, I think it was like a hot seat in 10XFC where you were, you were like stressed out about trying to hire and just, yeah, I just, I just remember being like, oh my God, that she's just under so much pressure. I'm childless. So I'm, I don't, I don't, I don't have so many balls. The only balls, the only ones I want or the only ones I throw are the ones I want to, right? Not that the children aren't, but yeah, but I'm, yeah, I'm so glad you did that. And, and 
also like the the fee you were charging included the strategy, right? Like it wasn't That's strategy the, VOC, the strategy, the copy. I was grossly undercharging myself and yeah. then doing all the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. This is actually yeah. something I wanted to speak to you about. Uh, is like your trajectory in copy and sort of where you started and then how you got to where you are, because I pretty much witnessed almost from, from the beginning, maybe like a year in, um, and it's been really super inspiring. So can you speak to that a little bit, especially like what got you into copy is something I don't even have any idea about. So I was a burned out content writer in 2018 when Joe first launched 10XFC. And I met Val Geiser in that course. And I, at that point, I had realized that I was done with content. And so for the only thing I've ever been good at in my life, the only thing that would like get me praises from other people was writing. And so I was like, you know what? There's nothing else for me. This is the only path. And so I started trying different types of copy, trying my way to sales pages, website copy, landing pages. And then thank God I met Val Geiser who was doing emails. And I just fell in love with what she was doing and how she was pivoting her business and the way she was showing up. It was really inspiring. So when she sent out a call for subcontractors, I immediately messaged her and asked her to take a chance on me. And she did and gave me two weeks to write my first email sequence. And like, I woke up with a spring in my step. I'm not a morning person, but I was waking up at 8 a.m. excited to do the research. And by the time I like submitted that first, I think it was five or six email sequence, I knew I found my passion. Mm. I love it. That's a pretty parallel to me, I guess, too. Hey, Shanti, like just 2018 too, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. 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 Funny. It's a, yeah, that's probably why I resonate so well, like watching you do that. And then how long did you work for Val for? Uh, About a year. Okay. So the one mistake I made was that as soon as I started subcontracting for Val, I realized, hey, there's more money in email than there is in content. And I just stopped focusing on 10 XFE and I completely focused on email. But um, 2018, end of 2018 or around the same time as the course was happening and I was subcontracting, I moved to Pakistan. And I had more support here because my parents were here and I, I could send my kids off to my parents if there was a deadline or anything. I decided to take my business full time, which meant that I needed to take on more clients. But I was Val's best kept secret. Nobody else knew who I was. I, would, I was afraid of showing up online, of getting on calls. And I like then I went back to 10XFC and started redoing all the work that Joe was, had been telling us to do for like years at that point. I remember like I asked Joe, I, I told Joe, I suck at discovery calls. And she's like, you gotta put up, put your big girl pants on and just do that. Right. And so I did for that first discovery call. I remember shaking so badly. I've written out an entire script and I read off it. The client could probably tell. I obviously didn't land that client, but it got me through that, you know, that ledge where like I was too scared to step off. And then I kept facing my fear. And by the 50th discovery call, I realized I wasn't scared of them anymore. Mm. Um, they were a routine part of my day. Yeah. Can we, can we go into that a bit? The mindset shift that had to occur, was it simply just sucking it up and repetition and realizing there's nothing to be afraid of here? Like, The discovery call piece is one aspect of that, but then there's this whole other aspect where you're showing up in a big way with your own course and your own emails and your quiz and like all these other things. So was the discovery call overcoming that hurdle a part of how you were also able to, you know, own your expertise? I think me getting good at discovery calls sparked everything else, right? And it wasn't just me, the repetition and me doing more of that. It was also me analyzing it. So as excruciating as it was, I would go back to the recordings and I would watch them and I would notice. And pricing was the one thing I would stumble over a lot. And I was Mm -hmm. like, that's when I realized, okay, I need to believe in my pricing because if I don't, then the client won't either. And I was like, why am I quoting this price that I'm quoting? 
and I didn't have a good answer for that. And so I was like, you know what? A hourly thing never worked out for me. Everybody says you need to have an internal hourly rate. I have never had it. For me, it's always been per email. That's the smallest I can break a project down into. And at that point, um, kudos to Val for being a very good paymaster. She was paying me $150 per email, I think. And I was like, if Val could pay me that as a subcontractor, companies can pay me that too. And so then I would say, okay, if it's a welcome sequence, you're going to need five to seven emails. And then per email, it comes up to them and I would round it off and then give it to them, right? Mm-hmm. Knowing that rounding it off gives me room for negotiation. And like, then I knew in my heart, like five to seven emails, my rate is 150 emails. This is the number that is right. And so that kind of conversation also when clients would haggle, I wouldn't get frustrated. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I learned, and as I was doing these email projects, Val also kind of trained me in a way where instead of just subcontracting for her, she would ask me, Do you want to do the strategy for this sequence? And I was like, Yes, bring it on. And so she'd hand over the research to me, and I'd come up with a strategy. And she did it for one or two projects, and she really liked it. And that was the confidence boost that I needed. Um, I remember Val referred a client to me, and I was too scared to take it on. I, oh. her, but I don't know if I could help them. And obviously, you know. Then she didn't send the client to me because I was having a crisis of confidence. And when you refer somebody to a company, you need to know that they will be well taken care of, right? And that was like the nail in the coffin. I remember, I don't think Val sent me another lead until I asked for one. And that was also a wake up call for me. Like, okay, now I'm ready enough to feel like I can ask her for, you know, if there were any leads that were in a good fit and if she would um, send them my way. So, a lot of small things came together to like form a more confident thing. I wouldn't say it's one thing. I would say one thing would spark the other and then it went on from there. Mm. Yeah. Something about analyzing those calls, like kudos to you. I do not know if I could go back into my Zoom recordings and watch any of my discovery calls. So that is like, yeah, big, big props on that. And I think there's yeah, there's probably something there for lots of us, including me, who's like, oh, I don't know about that. Because hmm, otherwise you're just leaving with a feeling, right? Like a feeling like, oh, that didn't quite go well. But if you can actually go back and watch them, then you can see where the places are that you're dropping off. I also love, I'm, I have trouble with this internal hourly thing too. And also like figuring out how long it's going to take to do a thing. So like, right. So I also love that like, hmm, like you were being paid this amount per email. So then you were comfortable with charging that amount per email. Yeah. So you know, you're making it already and that you're subcontracting. So that person is probably charging at least twice that much, most likely three times that much per email. So it can like give you some confidence in the places you're showing up now, not just like discovery calls, but yeah, your course. Cause a lot of that happens live, right? Yeah. And like, here you are on our podcast and you've been on lots of other really rad podcasts and you're really active on Twitter. Like, when did you start to feel comfortable, like taking the steps to become, because again, I'm in this place too, where I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to show up. I'll just just hang out with Shandi and have conversation with my friends and that's it. So like, when or how did you know, like, sure, I'm going to choose Twitter or yeah. how, How did that come for you? Oh, so I am a, what I like to call a geriatric millennial, right? I stopped being cool, but Instagram peaked. I haven't <laughs> tried Snapchat. I haven't tried TikTok. Like the only TikTok videos I watch are the ones that are uploaded on Instagram and people are kind enough to like put them on their stories and stuff. But so Twitter was the one platform that I've always been more comfortable with, right? But then when I, and during my content writing days, Twitter was really, really good to me. Um, I would get startups and you know entrepreneurs reaching out, asking for blog posts and ebooks and so on and so forth. But as burned out, as, as I started getting burned out as a content writer, like one of the first things to go are the things you enjoy most because that guilt of not doing the work like superimposes on everything. And then you feel guilty, like I need to meet a deadline, but I'm on Twitter and so Twitter needs to go. So I went back to it in I think late 2018 because I was like, this platform felt like home once it can feel like home again but I'll tell you it was hard I would spend hours just thinking what to tweet about 
Mm. Right. And I, if I did a thread, I would send it to like three different people asking, is this okay? Should I tweet it out? I was so afraid of like being seen as a fraud. Mm. Um, and it took six months of like tweeting regularly for my account, for the algorithm to notice me and my account to start getting likes more than like five out of which three were my cousins, by the way. And so it's just, it's just gradual. I am not afraid of playing the long game. Let's just say if I know it in my bones that something will work, I will stick with it. And yeah, that's so discovery calls happen first because I got comfortable doing discovery calls. Creating a live training program became the obvious choice because I love teaching live now. And the reason is pretty selfish. Like recorded calls, you have to be perfect. You have to do retakes. All of that excruciating for me because I'm like have a lot of ums and ahs and I pause to like put, get together my thoughts and I I still suck at reading off a script. And so I decided that it's going to be live training. It, it's going to be one to one and a half hour of a workshop and I'm going to be done, right? And then we can upload it, edit it for like anything where I'm like answering questions, whatever, if there's a pause, if I got disconnected, all of that can be edited later and put up. And everybody will know they are watching a recording of a live workshop. It worked beautifully for two reasons. A, no stress on me, right? I will literally just show up on the call. 15 minutes before the call, I put on my hijab, I put on my lipstick and concealer and look like the most awake person you've ever seen all day. And then the other thing that worked for me was e-commerce is a constantly evolving industry, right? So I want to be able to update my examples and my side decks and even my email challenges without having to re-record an entire workshop. And so this gives me the freedom to adapt according to what I'm learning in my client work and what I'm noticing. And if there's a new strategy that I've tried, I want to include it in my workshops. And so training live helps me do that. And it's like combining two loves of mine in one, like teaching and emails. And I'm, I can't believe I just said I, I love teaching because for the longest time, I didn't launch this course because I hated teaching. I get mad when people don't do what I tell them to do. <laughs> so I was like, how am I going to deal with it when people are paying me and I can't get mad at them? Um, it turns out I have more patience than I thought I did. Mm. Well, you're really selling me on this live three because right now everything in my, in my growth business program is pre-recorded and I'm like beating myself up about, I got to update this. I got to update this with everything I've learned and all these new examples and all the things. And yet updating it is a massive endeavor. And as much as I don't want to be an anal perfectionist, I am. So, so I keep putting it off and yeah, you've got me noodling on like, oh, what if I like ran it live and just sell it as a live thing? And then that's the re-recording. And then, yeah. and then it's updated. After this, let's set up a call after this and I'll show you how I do mine. So. <laughs> I would love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Because I think, Shanti, it's been like a year and a half at least that you've been like, maybe yeah. longer, but that you've been like, seriously, like put it on the calendar, take it off the calendar yeah. <laughs> sort of thing. I feel similarly, I think like we put so much pressure on ourselves to like create something perfect if it's going to be pre-recorded, but I don't think we even know what people like, of course we know our best practices, um, techniques, tips and tricks, but when people are there live, you can like channel what they need to hear and answer their questions in a way more organic way. Yeah. And you speaking of ger geriatric millennialness um, or elder millennials. So I saw this TikTok the other day because I'm personally like super addicted to TikTok and need to limit myself. But this guy was talking about how the mindset, the content creation mindset for a lot of millennials is based on Instagram and that perfect aesthetic and really going for that like dream life, high quality, only showing the highlights real, you know, the, you know, the drill yet the Gen Z and like the new way of creating content that seems to work a lot better is actually just being real and imperfect and doing it on the fly and showing up 
live and answering questions and, and like, nobody cares if your aesthetic is on point. I will say this for somebody who loves teaching live. I am terrified of doing Instagram lives or like any kind of social media live. Mm. Why? No idea. It's mm. just one of those things. Okay. I have like, oh, I'll tell you what, it's, yeah, the, it's the, it's the audacity of looking at yourself in the camera. It feels so vain. Yeah. Yes. I solved that with Marco Polo. Marco Polo is like a text video app um, that I use quite a lot. Uh, maybe I'll invite you to it and we can start chatting with each other because it actually like helps really help me connect to people when I was living really far away from my friends. Um, but you just like get used to looking at yourself, you know, and then you get you get to see other people too. So perhaps we can start a Marco Polo relationship since <laughs> since magnetic yeah. is ending and I won't be able to just like tap at you when I have questions. Yeah. There's something about this, like Insta polished perfection, nine grid looks perfect sort of aesthetic thing that I would be really happy to say goodbye to. Cause I, I can't live like that. So I just don't even bother to like try to have a brand almost. Cause I'm like, can I do anything on brand almost when it comes, when it comes to social Another kind of guess I have though also summer is that like when you're teaching online, those people paid you good money to be there. Whereas like if you're hopping on like an Insta story live, then you're kind of just like broadcasting out. But I want to invite you to challenge yourself to do that because people, it, it could be interesting for you to see the sort of feedback you get from people who aren't necessarily like or weren't necessarily like ready to, to buy your course and, and see yeah. you live in, in that way, right? It is a different. True, yeah. but on the yeah. website, do yeah. I want strangers to be buying my course? Okay, so mine is a very high priced course because it's top live. I you know teach live, I answer questions live. I review your email challenges. I do strategy brainstorming sessions with you. I provide uh, a, a, an alumni group as a graduation present and monthly, um, Q&A calls at no extra cost, like that there's ongoing support. And so I don't want to, and, and because it's such a high priced course and because it's so highly spoken of by past students, so many people want to give into formal. And I almost always want to get on a call before somebody buys and I'm like, listen, I need to ask you, are you in debt? Is putting food on the table tough for you? Are you living paycheck to paycheck and worried about finances? If that is the case, my course is not for you. I'm not going to teach you anything that you can't learn on your own. It is only going to take you longer. That is the only difference. And the best example I give them is I learned, when I was learning all of this, my course wasn't there. And so I am living proof that you can succeed as somebody who has not taken it. Right. Yeah, but you've talked me out of it twice and now it's way more expensive. <laughs> so like, I hear what you're saying, but like, I got your email. I'm like, shit, I need to get it this time. But I know she's charging like three times as much. So I hear what you're saying and mm. it's kind of you to talk people out of it. But I don't know if you did me a service both of those <laughs> times. <laughs> so in, in my defense, you weren't doing e-commerce emails at the time. Sure. You were entrenched sure. in SaaS. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Half teasing. Uh, <laughs> that's why I that's because then I remember why I said no to somebody. Yeah. 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 It wasn't about debt, but it was like, really, Dawn? I'm like, yeah, but I just want to learn from you. So anyway, mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm just teasing back basically. <laughs> oh, I love that summer that you do that though. And are you selling it mainly via sales calls or is it like a direct registration? So, uh, no. So to my email list solely through my email list. So I've got a very small email list about 1,500 people and about 180 of them are on the wait list. So the early bird launch goes out only to them. And this time around, I've asked if some of my students want to be affiliates and you know they can sign up and do their own thing if they want to. Once, last time I was able to fill out 12 spots from the early bird and the final number of students was 21. And so only nine people signed up from the actual launch that went out to like over a thousand people. So the wait list is where the real money are, like the people who mm. invested and waiting for the course. So I'm mm-hmm. hoping this time around I fill it out with just 
the wait list so that I can avoid the stress of the actual launch. And like, I literally sent out an email today saying, listen, to my main list that I am launching to the early bird, but I know some of you are not on there. I'm hoping to sell out all 20 spots so that I don't have to do the full launch. So if you're interested, get on the wait list because we're launching on Thursday. Um, I, I'm very transparent about the fact that I am, I don't take stress anymore. I hate it. Mm. And I will, I'm very, very transparent about how I do things. So I have no qualms about like sending out an email to my list saying, listen, I'm trying to avoid the full scale launch. The early bird will get you like $900 off and a nine month payment plan and all of that. Now's the time to get on it. Yeah. And this idea of uh, maybe I don't even want to sell to strangers and having a premium pricing for what we're referring to as a course, but it sounds like it's a lot more than what most people would define a course as. But that said, I've been thinking a lot about the math behind our pricing decisions, whether it's a course or a coaching program or a hybrid, or even like as service providers, what we price our packages at. And I'm so, I've never been good at math. So this is maybe a revelation to me, but old news to everybody else. But I've been thinking about like, okay, if I were to increase my pricing by 50% on say my course or a package and I got 50% fewer yeses on sales calls on the sales page, like it doesn't matter. And that's probably the worst case scenario is that I'm going to get 50% fewer yeses. So, but at the end of the day, it evens out and then you can give more attention to the people who are committed and are willing to make that investment. So it's, you know, it seems like a win-win and it, and it takes the stress piece. I mean, largely out of the equation, not completely, but yeah. So it's, it's, I learned this when I launched my course. Right. And from the beginning, it was because my email list was small. I was like, anything priced low will not make me money. Because A, my email list is like a um, side hustle, love project kind of a thing. I'm not very active with it anymore. After the first nine to 10 months of like emailing weekly, I just kind of cut it off, got busy. And then I was like, it needs to be a more engaged, more involved in a higher priced course for it to make me. Mm. and um, that's what I did and so to this day this is my fourth launch for the course Uh, the first time I launched it I had 250 people on my list Uh, the beta round I needed 10 people the second time around I needed I got 30 people and that was from a list of 800 people this time around I need 20 and I keep increasing stuff, right? So there are master classes. You were incredibly generous in coming on as a guest expert, Shanti, in my beta launch. And like people still rave about the guest expert session because not every copywriter is just gung-ho about e-commerce emails, right? Some of them are signing up because they're working in multiple industries like I do. And so they're like, this is a skill we want to sharpen and all of that. So I had a couple of quiz creators in my course that were like, we want to do quizzes for e-commerce emails now. And we want to see how like Shanti's thing taught us how quizzes will work. Now your thing is teaching us how emails will work. And it, it's such a beautiful combination. And we love that we got it in one course. So master classes and guest expert sessions can be helpful. They're, they're not always filler. And so the perceived value of the course, because I've been so intentional in the topics I cover, that it's like a very holistic approach. I'm not just teaching you email strategy and copy. I'm also teaching you how to run an e-business. This time around, I introduced a masterclass called the A to Z of running an e-commerce email project. And I walked them through two live projects of mine where I showed them like, hey, this is how I handle a retainer client. This is how I handle like a automation a month project that's month-wise. I'm um, sorry, that's like three months, that's a three month project and so on. And it blew everybody's mind, but it also demystified so much. And if you were to ask me why I launched this course, there are two reasons. One, I have always felt like an outsider in the e-commerce industry because obviously look at me, I'm not a bro marketer. And for some reason, the e-commerce world is filled with bro marketers. And I've always felt 
like an outsider a little unsafe if I try to get involved so I've always stayed away and I wanted to create a community where I could geek out over emails without worrying about other people mm. right the second reason was I wanted to demystify the world of e-commerce emails especially for women right so every man that's taken my course raves about it but majority of my students have been women and they've gone on to do some incredible things. And that makes me feel just so proud. Mm. Uh, and feel, I feel like I've, I've done something. I've contributed. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is what you teach also relevant for just people who own e-commerce businesses? It is. But it's a little overkill for them. Because I then the freelance business side of the things right. is no longer relevant to them. Mm-hmm. Cool. Have you created that community that you were searching for? I have this lab. The alumni group is filled with 40 plus students at this point. Wow. Love it. I love that you talked about bro marketers too, because I had a question about bro marketers on Twitter and, and you pick and fight with them. Mostly I just wanted to say, like, I think it's really cool that you pick fights with bro marketers. I don't pick fights. I don't think I pick fights. Come on. The only thing <laughs> I pick fights is my newsletter. But I will say this, that there are times where I have like for me it's probably because for context I'm a brown Pakistani hijabi woman in e-commerce and SaaS and so for me trust is a huge thing if I do not trust your intentions I will not open up to you and in a lot of cases I will ghost you and it has happened to some really big names in the e-commerce industry and there have been times like it, it still happens, right? Some people are nice to me in public, but then they'll ignore me in private, even when I'm the one doing them a favor. And so it just really, I don't know. I have learned to trust my gut. Mm. I do not give anybody the benefit of doubt anymore. So the way I see it, the onus is on the other person to put me at ease. It's not my job to assume that they have the best intentions. Mm. Interesting. And how does that apply to Twitter? Like, uh, oh, that applies by being loud. Uh, Justin Blackman called me bolder, brasher, ballsier. And that means the only people coming to me and interacting with me are the people that are totally okay with me. Mm, yeah, I love that. Oh, Justin, leave it to him. <laughs> Seriously. That man, we got to have Justin on the podcast. <laughs> Side note. But yeah, that's really a beautiful example that you get to set for your community, for anyone who struggles with just being themselves and take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. This is me. And it's been part of this beautiful evolution uh, that like we've been able to witness being in the copy world with you over the last three, four years. Just like you just were, I don't want to say you're not gentle now because you are, but it, <laughs> I feel like you've like taken on I'm going to use a word you've used for yourself like audacity in a way that that like it's like you're owning it it's not actually audacious to for you for you to speak out in the way that you're speaking out but before it it felt yeah like you're just a little bit more timid a little bit more hiding and yeah I yeah I, I find it really inspiring I I don't know that I'll do much on Twitter anyway because it just seems like such a like crazy sort of like sort of place but I I do enjoy being on it again and and like reading through your tweets or like learning even who the bro like because I'm so outside I don't even know who the bro marketers are so like through through your call outs yeah I I, exactly I don't either it's I can recognize a bro marketing tweet yes I see one right and so I will not go and hunt them out but if you're like asking for like but you know there are no women in signing up for my conference dude your entire conference page has photos of men Mm. like and then you're asking for advice and you're getting advice and you're not taking it well and you're not making any changes it was just lip service people can see that yeah um and people like me can smell it like a mile away but going back to being confident and the evolution, it again ties back to me getting more confident in my skills. So this was key for me. The more confident I grew in my email skills, the more outspoken I became because I knew that I could help these brands. And if they are not coming to me for who I am, it is their loss, mm. right? And so I would say that 
okay, now, now that I've worked with like some really big names and I'm like, I could, my, if my husband is to believe, to be believed, he says I talk emails and even in my sleep. And because I was joking when they're like, I feel like I could talk emails in my sleep. And he's like, what are you talking about? You do. And I was like, <laughs> don't tell anybody. I am telling them. But it's so, here's that confidence in myself that I'm a problem solver, that I can help companies solve their email problems. Just really, that might make me a little arrogant because when I am mistreated, or when I see bias, or when I see somebody trying to negotiate a contract or a code based on like where I am, my first instinct is, do you know who I am? Mm-hmm. Right? And I have started saying to anybody who will listen that I now want to be treated like royalty. If you want to work with me, you better know how to treat me like royalty. And it's not an abstract concept. There are brands and companies that showed me what being treated like royalty means, right? It is people, companies like Drip that went out of their way to work with me that would email me the night before Ramadan saying, we know that this is a special month for you where you do a lot of prayer and reflection. So if you want to move any deadlines that are coming up, please feel free to. That is huge. That is a client willing to extend deadlines by an entire month. And that takes a lot of empathy and consideration, Mm -hmm. right? And for them to actually search and look up what Ramadan means to me. Mm -hmm. So, and it's the same for like clients that are actively working with me to make sure that they don't contact me during my vacations, it's clients that are completely understanding the fact that I want to keep, uh, I need to reschedule a call because my kids are sick, mm-hmm. right? And it's it's those tiny little things that as women, we tend to be so grateful for, but really it's just being a human being. Uh, and I'm curious what your experiences have been in terms of not being treated like royalty as a service provider and I mean, I think we've all, we've all been there and many people listening have been there. And I think about this a lot because it still happens with me and my team where I'm like, you're really like going to try and walk all over us like that. Like the whole, do you know who I am? Like, come on, what is this? And I'm attempting to approach that from a place of like, well, where am I not communicating the standards of how I want to be treated, how I want my team to be treated and how can we do that better from your perspective? Like, have you, have you done that? Do you have any, anywhere where you're communicating with clients or potential clients, what that Royal treatment looks like? So I have two tactics for it. One is what Joe teaches us called the DC. On the project kickoff call, after we sorted everything out, the last slide on my project kickoff deck is a day C where I ask them, okay, now we need to figure out who's responsible for what. And the driver is obviously me because I'm the one driving this project and doing the emails. And it instantly puts me as the head of the project, as the one leading the project. It's it's a very subconscious thing that I didn't even know I was doing until like it started happening. And, And then it was like, okay, now we need... Um, the approver who's going to be the final, the single point of contact. And just by me saying, I need a single point of contact immediately sets the stage right now. They may get to, they don't get a choice in this. They only get to decide who that single point of contact is going to be. And as soon as I'm giving that name, I put it in the table and I say, okay, every time I give, send you a deliverable, discuss it amongst yourself, but please only communicate one person, you who's just given your name, communicate with me so that we can avoid confusions and double work and so on and so forth. And it will save all of us time. Of course, there's a lot of subtlety involved here as well, where I am positioning it as a win for both sides, making it easy so that there's no confusion, all of that. Contributors would be everybody who needs to provide material to me in some form of way or provide support to me so that I could do the work that I need to do, right? An informer is somebody who has, who just needs to be informed, who doesn't need to be involved. They don't necessarily have to involve, be like attend the calls or anything or even approve the project, but they need to be CC'd and right? And I, it's usually the founder who 
um, or you know the head of product or whoever. And that just really, really sets the stage, right? And I have managed with the Daisy, I have managed teams of 15 and more people. And the projects have gone smoothly. But I will say this, they've also gone smoothly for this other tactic that I do. My capacity to ignore bad behavior and pretend like it didn't happen is huge. Like I will completely ignore an email asking me to rewrite an email after it was uh, approved and go and, and go straight to the approver, right? And CC everybody in and say, all of this is done. What is next on our agenda? Here is what I need to do. Here is what I will just ignore it. Okay. Right? And CCing it means other people on the team are also seeing, and they can have both internal conversations that they need to have. Like, why are we asking to rewrite an email that has been approved? Somebody yeah. is going to notice, right? Yeah. I don't need to be the one to call it out. Um, I just need to like bulldoze over and get to the next point because I know that this will not help the project. So smart. Yeah. Okay. I butcher the pronunciation of the daisy and I started calling it a daki and I just like always call it a daki now. And so we have like an inside okay. joke on the team that like, and it's like my little pet daki that's like a, <laughs> it's like a pterodactyl from land before time vibes that sits on my shoulder and it's like daki daki because we've had so many conversations now like we need to do this. We know about it. We just haven't been doing it. And so we, we just had our first project where we actually did the DACI, the DACI, and I it went, it's going smoother because this is a, this is only a problem for us now that we're working with teams yeah. of, yeah, like 15 people that all want to leave comments in the Google Doc and it just becomes like, yeah, so I'll tell you. The Daisy worked brilliantly with HubSpot, mm -hmm. right? The approver went through the emails, approved them, and then the team would come in a lot of times to like add comments. And all of those were, thank God, complimentary. Mm -hmm. Even three months after the emails were live, somebody would like leave a comment. I'm just going through these emails. They're so good. This part is excellent. All of that. So it's, and the way people leave comments also set a channel, right? If that one person, if that first person is appreciating, the rest will follow suit. If, if that first person is criticizing, it sets mm -hmm. the trend, which is why it's so important to have one person review and make suggestions so that the edit, the final version, after you work with the approver, can then be taken to the rest of the team. Yeah. Yeah. It really simplifies the whole process. I love that. And I love that you said that to Shanti because I was years ago, I was like, we need this. And we weren't <laughs> even in this like big team thing, but you definitely like, we, we realized how badly we needed it when we started working with these people with these like 10 people marketing teams where like all the love to them, but like, we don't know what their expertise is or why they're allowed to like make those comments. And then I love the, like, just ignore it. That's so funny. Um, <laughs> just like, yeah. like bulldoze over the people who aren't allowed to do those things and then allow them to have their internal dialogue and then come back. That is so brilliant. Also, there is a third thing oh, yeah, that go, I do that I hesitated saying, but I'm going to say it. I channel my inner decent white man. So, you know how people say like, what would a mediocre white man do? I'm like, let's, let's put positive thoughts, right? What would like a decent white man do? And the most decent white man, like I know a bunch, right? But when you think about a no bullshit approach, I think Joel Klepke. So anytime I am faced with a tricky situation, I ask myself, what would Joel do? How would Joel approach it? And the first thing he'll do is like take out all the emotion from the email. And I know this because he helped me resign from my agency job by completely rewriting my resignation email. And he's like, send this and you won't have any problems. And I did not have any problems. Whereas if I'd sent my version, there would have been a lot of problems. But I've learned so much from Joel. But the biggest thing that I've learned from him is approaching conversations and communications without putting emotion in it. Oh yeah, that is that is key. I have a really easy time doing that for other people. 
And then when it's for yourself, it's so much trickier, but often, you know, when you're a writer, people, friends, family, they just send you things and they're like, like my dad yesterday, he sent me, he's like, I have a, a high caliber client here and I need to send them an email. Can you review this for me? I'm like, yeah, sure, dad. So anyhow, it happens all the time. And I'm always one of the biggest things is like, okay, well, this is like really emotional and you might not want it to be in this circumstance. Yeah. So yeah. What would Joel do? <laughs> Speaking of Joel, this is a perfect seg for me to bring up a question I have for you, Summer. So what do you think? Is it possible to get a 100% conversion rate? Okay, so I have spent years saying that it's not, right? Like there's no such thing as 100% conversion rate and there's no such thing as 100% retention rate. And then I went and proved myself a liar. Mm. I hired Joel's case study buddy to do a case study for me for a B2B SaaS client of mine that needed a retention-focused email sequence. And they were, they're a project management software, right? And they have like a, a couple of years before Adobe stopped support for Flash, they introduced a new version and got their users to move to the new version. But then when Adobe decided announced that they were stopping support by December 2020, they looked into their numbers and realized that in the past three months, 66,000 projects have been created on the old version. And they, this is an enterprise level B2B SaaS. So these are customers who are some, maybe paying them hundreds of thousands of dollars per year uh, to use their software and they didn't want to lose them. And so they came to me, I created an email strategy for them. We did those emails. And one of the things I did, I don't know if they implemented it but I created the email sequence in a way where they could reuse it. So the first time we ran it, we put, put a time limit of like three months so that we know how those emails are doing. And so when we checked three months later, the number of projects being created had come down to 23,000. And I was very happy with that number, right? I was like, that's great. And then I forgot about that project because I was busy with other projects. But now I want to redo my website and I want to do away with productized services and all of that and lean into consulting and training. And I was like, and, and bigger SaaS projects, right? And I was like, I need a case study for like a retention focus and a case study for an onboarding. And the retention was one, one was the first one. And so when Joel's team went and interviewed my client um, about the results, they had forgotten the 66,000 and the 23,000 figure, which I remember because I was impressed by them. Because they had a bigger number. They said we didn't lose a single client. Summer helped us retain 100% of, of our clients. And I, when I saw it, it just triggered my imposter complex. I was like, who the hell is going to believe that? I just went and did something that I've been saying is just not possible. And so, but it, thank God, it's case study buddy. It's Joel Petke. The If there is a king of SaaS copywriting, it is him. And if his team is saying, I got somebody 100% attention rate, then I damn well did. Mm. Yeah, I love it. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, she went from like one day on Slack, uh, like being like, I'm an audacious, audacious asshole. Look at me, like talking myself up to the next day being like, guys, I got this case study and I don't know what to do with it. I don't want to show it to the world. It's too good. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm like I lied in the past or like, I don't like, and so I just wanted to, uh, yeah, I want to highlight that because I think it also highlights the fact that so many business people are like you as soon as you deal with your mindset struggles, you're just like going to evolve into this next place where these yeah. new mindset struggles that maybe are kind of based on the old ones might come up. And then you have to figure out how to show up in this bigger way as well. So I'm yeah, so yeah, I love that you're saying that, Dom, because like I'm there's a level of success that I'm comfortable with. And then there's a level of success where like I'm like, oh, shit, what is happening? Can, I don't I don't think I want this much success. Right. But the truth is, I I do. It's smart. Growth is smart. The, and the, I finally got over that in a way where I reframed it. The more successful I am, the more people I can support. Mm. And that includes the girl education, which is a 
a cause close to my heart, I donate a certain percentage of my budget fee to girl education, which was um, which I could say was another reason in making me comfortable with charging more because I knew mm-hmm. I was going to be helping people, right? Yeah. And so it just feels so good to make that donation and then to receive an email saying you just supported the education of 11 children for the next year. And then my clients feel so good when I forward those emails to them. And one of the changes that I've recently done is I've shifted from like supporting the Malala Fund. It's amazing. But I've now chosen a nonprofit in Pakistan, which builds schools for boys as well. But they also focus on girl education and they have like the highest female teacher ratio in, in the country. And so now I donate to them because my daughters convert into more Pakistani rupees and the more Pakistani rupees they convert into, the more kids they can make. Mm, yes. Uh, we'll put links to those in the show notes if anyone wants to also donate and check it out. Yeah, it's just another reason to price in a way where you can be generous with causes that inspire you to grow, be more successful, not for vanity metrics or for your own ego, but for, well, sure, maybe for those things a little bit, but for a lot of other reasons as well. So uh, at this point, everyone's probably like, all right, how do I learn the secrets of a hundred percent conversion rate? Okay. (laughs) So tell us. Uh, there is so far no way. Like I, everybody, when when somebody comes to me, it's like, how did you do it? And like, I just read through the voice of customer research enough times until like a, I got ideas and a strategy emerged and I give those ideas to my client and so on and so forth. But this client was unique in a way where they're committed to retaining users, mm. right? And they did not... They don't shy away from any of my recommendations. Anything I recommend, they're willing to try it. And they don't, and they're one of those rare companies that don't mind negative feedback because they say it's a chance for us to improve. But as far as learning SaaS emails, that is coming later this year. I am planning on launching a SaaS email bootcamp in September, but it's just in my head. I don't even have a week put together for it. And I will probably only be offering it to my e-commerce email bootcamp students first because they're the ones who've been requesting it the most. Uh, and again, it's, it's going to be a beta round and all of that. It's coming, but for now, there's no other way except listen to all of my SaaS podcasts. I've done a bunch of teardowns. Just research Summer OS and SaaS and you will learn because I've done a bunch of webinars and workshops and all of that. So it's not like you can't learn anything. Uh, all of the free content that I'm doing, the webinars, the podcasts, the uh, workshops, they're all ways for for people who can't afford my courses to learn. Mm. Meanwhile, I'm just going to start increasing my prices so I can get yes, into please. both of those this year. <laughs> 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 and donate. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so, okay, well, we'll put the links to whatever we can, whatever links exist already, we'll pop them in the show notes. And e-commerce bootcamp might be happening by the time this episode goes live. So check it out if it is. And can we send people to your quiz? Is it still alive? It's not, it's no longer alive. Okay. Yeah. So that, that I had to put the lid on the quiz because it wasn't attracting the leads. The quiz was built to attract because copywriters were signing up, even though the quiz for like was for SaaS and e-commerce companies. Mm. And I was like, okay, at some point it might come back. But yeah. for now, it's, I've, I've just, like three months ago, I, you know, took it out. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I think the lesson is to go to Summer's website, which we will definitely link in the show notes and get on the wait list for everything um, that you can. Um, And also (laughs) I discovered today that I'm on her list with two different emails. And I recommend that because then you can really learn a lot um, from both sides, uh, the, uh, the wait list and the other side. And yeah, it's a good time to follow her on Twitter as well. (sighs) 
Summer, thank you so much for coming on. This has been so much fun and you are just such an incredible inspiration. And yeah, I can't even with you, woman. Thank you for having me. This was incredible. Thanks, Summer. Thanks, everyone. Catch you next time. Whoa, look at you listening to the very end. We are so deeply grateful for you and borderline obsessed with hearing what resonated most and how you're taking the seeds planted in these conversations and sowing them in your life and business. It would mean more than you know if you would share this episode with a friend or subscribe, rate, leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Your reviews tell the algos behind the apps that we are worth pressing play on. So please, if you're feeling generous, take two minutes to share the love. And if you are curious around what your unique advantage is in this wild and wacky online world, take the unfair advantage quiz at shantyzack.com forward slash UA quiz. And thank you again, sunshine. Go light up the world and we'll see you next time.